Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We come this morning to the end of our consideration of what some have called the Sermon on the Mount, contained in Matthew 5 through 7. We've been in these chapters uh, for several months uh, as part of a larger series in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll tell you where we plan to go from here. We will break from our consideration of Matthew's Gospel after this week, that God willing, We'll preach some topical messages over the coming weeks and then a a series of sermons that orients our minds toward the coming of Christ in the Advent season. And then we'll return to Matthew's Gospel, the new year. This morning we conclude. In Matthew 7, I'm going to expound, God willing, verses 24 through 29, but I want to read for context beginning of verse 21. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray once more together. Father, thank you for your word. and Thank you that we have it recorded for us here. Thank you for bringing us within the sphere of blessing, the privilege that not all share, to hear your words, to hear the words of Jesus. No salvation outside of those words. But we see what our Lord is calling us to hear. We see that it's not only those who hear, but those who keep his words, those who obey his words, who will be finally saved. We pray that in our meeting now and in the next number of minutes, the next hour, you would help us, that you would please come, and that you would move us all to a moment of decision, whether we will live in obedience to Christ or not, please awaken faith in us by your Spirit, make us willing to do your will and able to do your will, we pray together in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, today we come to the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, the series within the series. I counted, I think it's about 26 sermons that we have been in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The first sermon was in January. So on January 15th, I preached a sermon titled, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Of course, not speaking of the sermon I preached, but the sermon that Jesus preaches here in this passage. So we really have been in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we, for uh, pretty much the entire year for most of 2023 with periodic breaks, and of course, Rex's series also in Philippians. I wonder this year, as we have been in the Sermon on the Mount, what have we seen and what have we learned as we consider these great words from Jesus? Today, we're going to see how Jesus concludes his sermon, and then we'll see something of how the crowds respond to this awesome teaching that we've taken a year to consider. For them, it wasn't that long. It'd be an hour or two or something like that. We'll see how they respond. (coughs) The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, written by Solomon, the son of David, that great man of wisdom, ends with these words. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
for this is man's all. Uh, Jesus now, in Solomonic fashion, is bringing us to hear the conclusion of the whole matter in His words. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. This is the path of wisdom, to keep my commandments. And he who does, she who does, will be wise. Today we have presented to us, verses 24 through 27, what we could call two ways to live. Two ways to live. That's the title of my message this morning. We've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Often Jesus is contrasting his way with false ways. There are two gates, right? There are two ways, two paths, two roads, two ways to live. Our brother David Ray, a few weeks ago, talked to us about the narrow gate that leads to life, the broad way that leads to destruction. Which path are you on? Last week, in the providence of God, Rex preached from Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 4.1, and he talked about two ways to live, a duality, mutually exclusive paths. You could live as a citizen, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, imitator of Paul and of Jesus, or you could live as the world lives. You could live in sin as an enemy of the cross. There's only two ways. And this morning, I come to a text which, again, is directing us to choose which way we will live, either in obedience to Christ's commands, building our life on the rock, or in disobedience, building our life on the sand. I don't know, I'm speculating here, could it be in the providence of God that the Lord is bringing some of us to a point of decision? Some in our fellowship here. Maybe you've come here today as a visitor. Uh, And the Lord wants to call you to a point of decision, to assess how you've been living, how you should live, which way you will live going forward. It's no coincidence that from the mouths of three different preachers, this has been brought to us in three different texts over the last month or so. We're going to see it again in our passage this morning. Let's consider the two ways to live as expressed in verses 24 through 27, and then I'd like to close and conclude with a reflection on Jesus' authority. Let's consider, first of all, the two ways to live. Number one, we have life upon the rock. Number two, life upon the sand. Consider with me, first of all, life upon the rock. Look with me, if you will, at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Let me do this. Let me first offer a summary of what life upon the rock is. A summary statement, kind of sums it up, and then we'll see it in the passage itself. This is life built upon the rock. Simply put, life built upon the rock is the life of following Jesus in faith and obedience. What's life built upon the rock? It's the life of following Jesus in faith and obedience. Jesus begins in verse 24 with the assertion, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. And of course, the emphasis is on that second idea. Not just hearing, but doing the words. Being obedient to his words. Being a keeper of Jesus' words. But let's not just pass so quickly over that statement about hearing the word. For we all must hear the word before we can become doers of the word. Jesus speaks of those before him who hear his words. The disciples, the crowds who are gathered around and others still who would hear his words. We who through the written word hear his words. Of course, we know from other scriptures one cannot be saved apart from hearing Jesus' words. You cannot be saved without being introduced to Jesus at the level of his words. You must hear Jesus' words in order to know Him, in order to have a relationship with Him, in order to be saved by Him. The Apostle Paul will famously state in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Can't be saved without the words about Jesus, the words of Jesus. In a crucial passage on discipleship, in John 6, we read this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone 
have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words, Jesus, and we need those words. If we don't hear your words, have your words, we cannot be saved. You have the words of eternal life. Words that contain objective truth about God and sin and salvation. Words that reveal who Jesus is as the Messiah and the Christ and how men and women can be saved through Him. Words about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Words that contain precious promises and precious commands and laws from our Lord. So I start with this assertion, to know Jesus at all, you must know Him at the level of His words. Got to hear His words. But now Jesus wants to say more than that. It's not just those who hear His words, it's those who are doers of His words who will be built upon the rock, who will finally be made to stand. Just one more comment on the the hearing of Jesus' words. Uh, It is uh, common in our day, sadly, to hear of people who formerly identified as Christians, uh, quote, unquote, deconstructing their faith. They're going to break it down, deconstruct it, and that usually means leaving the faith. Um, One thing I would just encourage you in, I've talked to more and more people over the last couple of years who are doing this, deconstructing their faith, and a lot of times they will comment on uh, things they heard in their families or things they heard in particular religious communities, maybe abuses that they witnessed and things like that. Uh, It doesn't take a great imagination uh, to imagine how religious leaders and parents and church communities can be abusive and can misrepresent Jesus. But one thing I have found helpful in conversations with those who are deconstructing their faith is to encourage them to make their evaluation about Christianity and about Jesus not finally on what they were told or taught in their families or their church communities or their Christian schools or whatever other kind of religious environment they were in, but to make the final judgment and final determination on the basis of Jesus' words. If you are deconstructing your faith because your parents were legalists or because the church environment you were in was narrow and and not what it ought to have been, if you're doing that because of poor parents and poor pastors and poor churches, I must ask the question, what ultimately was your faith in? Was it in the system? Was it in your family? Was it in your parents and your pastors? Or was it in Jesus? And have you ever contemplated Him and comprehended Him? at the level of his words. Bring them, uh, parents here who have wayward children. You don't need to vindicate your parenting. You don't need to vindicate the teaching of the churches you were in. Uh, You don't need to vindicate uh, the different Christian models that they saw. You must bring them to the words of Jesus and still ask that question, what do you do with him? Let them hear the words of Jesus and let them make their judgment based on that. Okay, now to the larger point, though, that Jesus is making. Hearing the words Jesus is going to tell us is not enough. Those who will finally be saved will be those who are hearers, not hearers only, excuse me, but doers of the word. Those who accept his words, who trust his words, and finally obey his words. This is a crucial point. And I want to ask young people in particular to to try to track with me at this point, pay attention to this point. Jesus is telling us an intellectual knowledge of him through his words, and even verbal profession of faith in Jesus on the basis of his words, though necessary, are no substitute for obedience to him. Jesus is telling us an intellectual knowledge of him through his words. He tells me statements, and I, they register with me. I understand what he's saying. And even a verbal profession of faith in Jesus on the basis of his words, though both necessary, are no substitute for actual obedience to him. You must hear his words. You must hear his words. You must profess faith in his words. But hearing and profession is not enough. You must agree with his words and you must obey his words. Jesus is wanting to draw a line between those who are really his disciples and those who are not. And this line is drawn precisely between those who obey him and those who do not obey him. Jesus, I think, is intentionally trying to be stark. 
He's trying to make things clean and simple and black and white. Simply put, he is saying, Christians, Christ followers, my disciples, citizens of my kingdom, they will make it their pattern and practice to obey my commands. Non-Christians will not. True disciples obey me. False disciples do not. Christians, having been born again, see this standard. They see Christ's commands. They see his law. They see his words. And they say, that's lovely. That's good. That's right. That's the path of righteousness. That's the path of life. That's the path of blessing. That is the way in which I can express my love to Jesus by obeying his commands. This is good. This is the way of life. They see the Lord's commands and they say, it's a good thing. I'm going to do what my Lord has said. Out of honor and love to him, I'm going to pursue the path of righteousness. I will keep his word. False Christians, Jesus is telling us, and non-Christians, false Christians are non-Christians, will see the standard, and they may even verbally praise the standard. But they will not keep the standard. They will not do what the Lord has said. They will not obey. This could be the secularist who praises portions of the Sermon on the Mount as sort of good social theory or good human ethics, but rejects the heart of what Jesus is calling men and women to do. It could be also professing Christians, people who say they are with Jesus, who say they are Christ's followers, who pretend at a relationship with Christ, but at their root are unwilling to obey Jesus. Jesus is trying to make this black and white for us. Jesus is, in fact, trying to exclude ambiguity. He's trying to squeeze out all excuses. He's trying to make things crystal clear. He's trying to bring us all to appreciate this dichotomy we've been talking about. The binary nature of the situation, the duality here. There is no in-between with Jesus. Either you embrace him for all that he is, putting your faith and trust in him, giving your life to him, living for him as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you do not. There's not a middle ground you can kind of straddle between obedience and disobedience. Between being darkness and light, death and life, following the world, following Jesus. You can only have one master. It is all or nothing. It is give him your heart, your everything, your obedience, or nothing at all. His sheep, his disciples, his followers, the ones who he will own are those who obey his words. Those who look at the Sermon on the Mount and think, yes, this is right, and this is good, and God helping me. I'm going to live this way. By the power of a new nature brought about by God's Spirit, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this way. And they do live this way, imperfectly. But they do live in obedience to Jesus. They do live the blessed life outlined in the Beatitudes. They do live in glad obedience to the commands of the kingdom. They delight in the law of the Lord. We're going to sing about the law of the Lord at the end of this sermon. They delight in the law. And they truly flourish and prosper as they follow Jesus. And again, I emphasize, as I've said many times in this series of sermons, I'm not talking about perfect sinlessness. I'm not talking about people who never fail. Christians are going to fail. And the Sermon on the Mount itself assumes that they will. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we're given the Lord's Prayer that tells us we need to pray daily. Father, forgive us. Oh, we'll still sin. But there is a fundamental commitment to doing the will of Jesus that nonetheless marks his people. They will become in their pattern and practice obedient to the commands of Jesus. They will be like those in the previous passage we considered, who do the will of their Father who is in heaven, and not like those who profess faith in the Lord but live lawless lives in disobedience to him. We are talking about real obedience to Jesus, even costly obedience to Jesus. Following Jesus is a full-contact sport. It's all or nothing. There's no halting with Jesus. Either I give him everything or I give him nothing. Either I surrender my heart, my sins, my hopes and dreams, my expectations, my feelings, my time, my money, my goals and ambitions, everything, or I am not worthy to be his disciple. 
I appreciated our brother Rex in his sermon last week took a moment to explain to us that phrase, mutually exclusive. He said these two paths are mutually exclusive, meaning you choose one, it excludes the other. There's no way you can have both. Jesus is saying the same thing here. You can't truly obey me and disobey me. You can't follow me in truth and not keep my commands. True disciples are those who give their lives to Jesus and are willing to follow him wherever he leads. They are those who not only hear his word, but do his word. They live in accord with his word. And this Jesus calls the blessed life. He describes it then in terms of a metaphor. The disciples who follow Jesus in obedience to his words, Jesus says, are like a man who built his house on the rock. In the metaphor, the house is a person's life. So the house is. We're all building our lives on something. And the rock is Jesus' commands and precepts. His words. We could even say it's the Sermon on the Mount itself. And Jesus is saying, if you embrace me and this way of life that I'm holding out to you, and if you accept my words and do them and embrace my commands, you will be like a wise man who builds a house on a strong foundation and that house finally will stand. And he envisions storms coming and floods rising and wind beating on that house. And the commentators debate, is that a reference to the final judgment or is it a reference to the storms of this life? I see no reason to exclude either. There will be floods and storms and tempests in all of our lives. But those who build their house on the rock, on the words of Jesus, words of promise, words of command, words of precept, they will be enabled to stand. Those who have his words and do his words, who have built their life on his words, they will be enabled to stand. I remind you of Jesus' words in the high priest's prayer in John 17, 6. How does he describe the disciples? I was so appreciative of our brother Johnny taking special note of this in his classes on the high priestly prayer. John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's a great description of faithful disciples, of those who follow Jesus. They are those who keep the Lord's word. Those are people who are standing on the rock. Those are the people Jesus is happy to own. Those are his disciples. Not just the hearers of his word, but the keepers of his word. The doers of his word. And they will stand. They have built their lives on something solid and substantial, on the kingdom on truth, on righteousness, on virtue, on life, on Christ himself, and they will stand. But you see, this involves embracing a whole new way of life. Uh, some of you, you see people in this church who have endured many storms, many tempests, and they're standing. They're able to stand. Why is that? Because they have built their lives on a real, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and have given themselves to a long obedience in the same direction for years and years and years. They have Jesus' words and they have kept his words. And Satan comes with his best attacks to knock them over and they keep standing because they have his words and they do his words. Trial, suffering come and they're still standing because they're keeping Jesus' words. And one day the great storm of judgment will come. The last day will come. And their life built on the rock will be vindicated. They were the keepers of Jesus' words. They were those whose faith bore fruit in good works, who truly followed Jesus. And they will be unable to stand when the storm of judgment day comes. Jesus is telling us, my statutes, my commands, and my words, if you will heed them, if you will bind them around your neck, if you will write them on your doorpost, if you will make them the soundtrack of your life and the north star by which the ship of your life sails, you will not fall. Uh, friends here have been following Jesus for many years. I encourage you, you've not been deceived. The time came when you first embraced the Lord Jesus. You heard his words and you believed. His words are true. His words are life. He keeps his words. And you followed him in obedience for these many years. What, what for? 
I hope you can each testify that I might stand on the rock and that I might in that great and final day be enabled to stand. You've not been fooled. You've not been sold a bag of beans. You have built your life on the rock. The rock who is Christ. The Christ who gives us his words. And you have not fallen. And you finally will not fall. No, you will stand. One day you will stand forever in the everlasting bliss of heaven. As life upon the rock. Consider with me secondly and a little more briefly. Life upon the sand. Two ways to live, right? Life upon the rock, secondly, life upon the sand. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Who is the one who builds his life or her life on the sand? Jesus tells us it's the one who hears Jesus' words but ultimately does not do them. Perhaps he hears the claims of Christ, the teachings of Christianity, the commands of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, not for me. This could be the atheist, the agnostic, the philosopher, the person who embraces a different religion. Or perhaps this is the person who hears Jesus' words and even makes some kind of pretense at an attachment to Jesus. But at the root of it, he is unwilling to obey him as the Lord of his life when the chips are down. It could be outright rejection. It could be a kind of sentimental affirmation. It could be a nominal faith that doesn't bear fruit in obedience. In any case, those who do not follow Jesus and do not make his words the foundation of their lives, they are said to be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The wise man, the Christ follower, the Christian man, he digs down deep. And he constructs his house, his life, on the rock, on real truth about life and sin and redemption and God. This man who doesn't follow Jesus' words, he really isn't bothered with foundations at all. Or if he is, he is too foolish to discern the difference between a foundation on rock and a foundation on sand. And as both go on with their building, the casual observer may not observe any difference at least not immediately. But when the storms of life come, the foundations are revealed. And the house of the man who did not follow Jesus' words, who built on the foundation of sand, his house will fall. Jesus says it's all going to crumble. Jesus is holding up two ways to live. And he means to bring us to a point of decision. You can live on the rock, on the solid foundation of hearing and keeping and doing Jesus' words. Everything else, Jesus says, is sinking sand. And notice, friends, isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he's contrasting these two ways to live, the man who builds his house on the rock, the man who builds his life on the sand, he chooses to contrast these two ways of living in the categories of wisdom and folly. Is that interesting to you? He doesn't say the man who built his house on the rock was good. Though that's true. He doesn't say the man who built his house on the rock was right. Though I think that's true. So he says whoever builds on the rock is wise. And the one who doesn't is a fool. Wisdom and folly. Solomon talked about wisdom and folly. Proverbs talk about wisdom and folly. David talked about wisdom and folly. The rabbis of Jesus' day talked about wisdom and folly. A couple hundred years earlier, Plato and Aristotle, they're, they're already dead by this point. They talked about wisdom and folly. And Jesus has the audacity to say the truly wise man or woman is the one who bows the knee to Jesus and acknowledges him as the Lord. It is the truly wise man or woman who embraces my claims, who follows my words, lives upon them as the foundation and the rock of his or her life. Jesus says it'll be the foolish person who builds on anything else, who rejects my words, doesn't obey my words. You appreciate this, don't you? All of us, all of us, everyone who came in here today, 
We're all building our lives on something. Every breath you take is laying down another brick. Pacing it up and stacking it up against another breath. Every conscious decision you make, every initiative, every action, we're building our lives and we're building it all on something. And I think people who think they're not building their lives on something are just not being intellectually honest. We're all building on something. By virtue of living, we're building on something. And so I just appeal to your observation. Have you ever noticed how fruitless and finally foolish and vain and empty so many foundations are? Foundations that people build their lives upon. Just think this out for a second. Consider some of the leading philosophies and worldviews of just the last hundred years or so, which, by the way, are not the leading philosophies and worldviews of almost everybody throughout history who believe all kinds of other stuff. And you might think of atheistic materialism. That was made possible through the discoveries of Darwin for people to start believing that way in the 1850s. It especially came to prominence in this country in the 20th century, the early 1900s. And it is this view that we don't need God to explain life. We have science and we have material things and all there is is material things and through advances in science and discoveries in science. We can sort of put it all together and have a coherent life and worldview. But of course you know this and more and more people have discovered this, are discovering this. Our world is far more religious now than it was 100 years ago. More people believing in God than there were 100 years ago. Atheistic materialism has largely failed because science can't answer metaphysical questions. In fact, science denies the validity of any metaphysical questions. There are no metaphysics when it comes to science. When I say metaphysics, I mean questions about transcendence and meaning and things. What's the meaning of the universe for the atheistic materialist? That's a question they can't answer. And people of a certain generation in this room were burned out on the lack of an answer and moved on to something else at some point. Millions of people doing that, burned out on atheistic materialism. How about 20th century progressivism? Things are getting better and better and better and better and through you know, advances in politics and a larger brotherhood of man and through advances in science and technology and medicine, well, things are gonna improve and we can find a kind of human utopia. Think of figures like Woodrow Wilson, 20th president, famous progressive. Uh, Friends, I just ask you from the standpoint of 2023, particularly this day in 2023, what has happened of all the progressive hopes? Are we in a better place than we were in 100 years ago? Two world wars on, Great Depression on, nuclear warfare on, crises like what's going on in the Middle East right now? See, what the progressives failed to realize as they were building their foundations in sand is that human nature ain't progressive. We got better devices. We have better medicines. We don't have better hearts. What about in the last 20 years? A secular postmodernism. A lot of people thought that that would be the way. This could be a foundation I could build my life upon, but what have we discovered? So many people of my generation totally burnt out on secular postmodernism, which says there are no meta-narratives, there are no moral absolutes, and thereby it can't give any sort of coherent meaning to the world. Why are we here? How should I live? What's the goal of my life? Postmoderns can answer that question. You can think of existentialism. All there is is bare existence. There's no meaning to life. It leads ultimately to nihilism. Think of Russian writers who talked a lot about that in the 20th century. You can think of secular hedonism. Well, I'll just live for my pleasure. That's going to be the foundation of my life. Whatever makes me happiest. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Really? That's it? Why should the pursuit of my self-indulgence and my pleasure be the organizing principle around which the whole universe is built? Is that a coherent worldview? Is that solid rock? Or is that a foundation in sand? What is the refrain of all these worldviews? That people just seem to flitter from kind of one to another. Some of you have embraced multiple of these worldviews throughout your life. What's the refrain? No answers given. No meaning ascribed. No hope offered. No coherent system of ethics produced. None of these worldviews can tell me why I'm here or how I should live or, or who I am. 
It's all shifting sand. No foundation on solid rock. Friends, I'll tell you, there is at least one other foundation in sand. Maybe you have never embraced any of those worldviews I just mentioned and many others that could be named. But there is another foundation in sand. It's in faco, go-through-the-motions Christianity. It's outward religious formalism. It's pretending to follow Jesus, even calling him Lord, and not doing what he says. And that most specifically is the sand that Jesus is talking about. Maybe it was just doing what mom and dad said, doing what the church or Christian school told you to do, or maybe you thought there would be some positive blessing for you if you announce that you're going to stand with Jesus, but at the root of it, you don't want to do what Jesus says. You see the Sermon on the Mount and you think, that's constricting upon my freedom and my pleasure. And you've been deluded into thinking you can profess an attachment to Jesus apart from actually heeding his words. Oh, my friend, thousands, millions are building their lives on that kind of shifting sand. And they can slip in and out of churches undetected. Oh, they hear the word. They even profess faith. They even call him Lord. But they don't do what he says. They don't obey his words. So many millions building their lives on sand. One day, Jesus says, the whole house of their lives will crumble and fall. And friends, there are no more distressing words than these. Verse 27, and the house fell, and great was the fall of it. To get to the end and realize, I've been building on nothing. It's all been sand. Why? Why did I not actually heed the words of Jesus? Somehow in my heart, I knew all along he was true, he was right. I was made to follow him. I didn't do it. The house caves in. So great is the fall of that house. I just ask you, my friend, tell me, what is your life? Can you give a moral justification for it, a defense of it? Why do you exist? What are you living for? What is the end and goal of all of this, all that you're doing? Avenge called it the raison d'etre, the reason for existence. What's the reason for your existence? What are you building on? What's the foundation? And let me ask you if you are keen enough to discern what the foundation of your life is. When you plant your feet down deep, do you find that it's solid rock? Or is it shifting sand? It is the wise man, the wise woman who builds their house on the rock. Jesus is determined here to drive us all to a point of decision. Which path will you walk? Which direction will your life take? Upon which foundation are you building? Which of the two ways to live will you choose? But now I must conclude this sermon and this series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and I conclude where the passage itself concludes. Look with me briefly at verse 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The statement, these sayings, verse 28, amounts to everything Jesus has been saying in this sermon. From Matthew 5, verse 3 to Matthew 7, verse 27. These are the sayings. This is what Jesus was preaching to them after he concluded these sayings. And we're to imagine this scene. Jesus was speaking. Jesus was preaching. He is likely elevated on the mount above his hearers. Here are his disciples nearby to him. And we think likely there were crowds then surrounding them, listening in. Maybe it started off with just the 12 or maybe others came. We don't know exactly. But here are Jesus' disciples and then the crowds are there also. They're the ones who react to his teaching. How long did Jesus preach? I don't know, 30 minutes? An hour? Three hours? We, we don't imagine that the words we have here are an exact transcript, but were the, the general thoughts, the, the main things that Jesus said. Maybe it was broader, more than what we have here. 
But we're to imagine that at some point, Jesus, elevated above his hearers, he stops speaking. Maybe he concludes with these very words about building your life on the rock or building your life on the sand. And maybe the last things he says are that for those who built their lives on sand, the house fell and great was the fall of it. And he stops and he sits down or he gets up or he goes somewhere and the service is over. What do we read when the sermon closes? What happens? There were the crowds and the text says they were astonished at his teaching. The verb translated astonished is used 13 times in the New Testament. 12 of those times it appears in the Gospels always, always as a reaction to Jesus' teaching. Occasionally as a reaction to his miracles. It is a very strong verb. It is the idea of being stunned. The idea of being dumbfounded. The idea of being speechless, jaw dropped. What did he just say? What did my eyes just see? What did my ears just hear? Astonished, stunned, dumbfounded. This is often the effect Jesus had on people. It's the effect he has on them here. The sermon has ended. The crowds are absolutely astonished. And what are they astonished by? This is teaching, of course. Both in its matter and in its manner. For verse 29 says, he was teaching them as one who had authority. That's manner, not just matter. What was he teaching like? As one who had authority and not as their scribes. Something about his words And something about the way he spoke was qualitatively different from the way the scribes spoke. The crowd certainly had listened to the scribes and the Pharisees and other rabbis many times. They were familiar with the utterances of Moses and the prophets of old. And yet, they had never heard teaching like this teaching. With this kind of matter. Taught in this kind of a manner. Friends, we've been looking at this sermon over the past several months together, really this whole year together, studying the sermon together. I ask you, how should we describe, how would you describe the manner in which Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? What strikes you about the sermon? I'll tell you what strikes me coming to the conclusion of this sermon now. It is how he speaks with a sense of total command command of his words, command of his audience, is tell them how to live. Command of the truth itself. He speaks with pure, bare, and unvarnished authority. And what's more, this authority, it's breathtakingly authentic. Like, I don't think he's lying. I don't even need to see him. Who could say these words? It'd be false. I don't think he's lying. But it's not just so authentic. Aren't these words also mysteriously compelling? I find them so. I feel myself mysteriously drawn. To his words, unlike anybody else's words, So confident is he, so certain, so imposing, so arresting, so penetrating, so demanding, so elevating and ennobling, so dignified and dramatic, and at the same time so meek and so gentle and so attractive and inviting. Who could talk this way? for even two seconds and be regarded as sincere. Definitely not the scribes. One commentator writes, the scribes were antiquarians, delving into commentaries, searching for precedents, claiming the support of famous names among the rabbis. Their only authority lay in the authorities they were constantly quoting, end quote. We've already seen this, haven't we? The scribes cite Moses 
and rabbinic tradition to establish their authority. Jesus cites no one and precisely in so doing establishes his authority. They need footnotes and citations to be seen as credible. Jesus needs only his bare word to establish his credibility. The scribes say, thus saith Moses, thus saith the Lord. Jesus simply says, I say unto you. They were mere commentators on Mosaic legislation. Jesus actually claims the right in himself to legislate for God. His teaching claimed the status of absolute truth. As such, it completely transcended his moment and his culture. It somehow took into view the entire human family throughout all time. And he spoke as one who, more than any other person on any other subject, actually knew what he was talking about. John Stott says this, quote, He knew who would be great in God's kingdom and who least, who was blessed in God's sight and who was not, which way led to life and which to destruction. With complete self-confidence, he declared who would inherit the kingdom of heaven, who would inherit the earth, who would obtain mercy, see God and be fit to be called God's children. How could he be so sure? So certain was he of the truth and validity of his teaching that he said human wisdom and human folly were to be assessed by people's reaction to him. The only wise people there are, he implied, are those who build their lives on his words by obeying them. All others by rejecting his teaching are fools. And no worse fate could be envisaged, he implied, than eternal separation from himself. Do you begin to feel like the officers in John 7? Do you know what the officers said in John 7? They're sent by the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests. They're to arrest Jesus. And so they go to the Feast of Booths in John 7 to arrest Jesus. And Jesus, they're speaking. He stands up on the great and final day of the feast, speaks his words to the crowds. They don't make the arrest. They come back to those who sent him, and they say, why isn't Jesus with you? Why didn't you make the arrest? What'd they say? No one ever spoke as this man. You weren't there. You didn't hear him. There was something authentic, something compelling. They don't say it, but it's implied, is it not? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Son of God? Totally unlike our scribes. One who speaks with authority because he actually has authority. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount is indeed designed to bring us to a point of decision. But you see, the question is not simply, what do you make of this teaching? But who is this teacher? Who do you believe him to be? And this is where I wish to leave us in this series. The Sermon on the Mount is not only designed to acquaint us with the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. It is meant to reveal to us the king of heaven himself. It is not meant merely to bring us to the Sermon on the Mount, but to the Lord of the Sermon on the Mount. It is meant to bring us to Jesus. And who is this Jesus who speaks in such an astonishing way? He is Israel's Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Moses, the true prophet who can speak for God. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David, the coming king, the promised seed who would open up a way to God for all the peoples of the world. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And this Jesus promises life. He promises that for all those who turn from their sin and believe, he will save them from their sins. 
He promises like a good shepherd to lead us in paths of righteousness. He promises us everlasting life with him, which we could taste now and which we will enjoy fully in the world to come. Last words I'll say, I'll leave you with this statement and I beg you to consider it. The bare existence of the Sermon on the Mount is both a statement and a proof of the reality that Jesus is Lord. The bare existence, you have the words before you, the bare existence of the Sermon on the Mount is both a statement and a proof of the reality that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do believe that you still bring the words of Christ to people. He is still speaking. We believe he speaks through the word. He, the living word, speaking to our hearts and our consciences through the written word. We have heard his words this morning. Our Father, we accept the choice that Jesus wishes for us to make. Whether we will build our lives upon him and his words, in obedience to him, or whether we'll build them on something else, what he has called shifting sand. Father, help us to be wise in choosing. Deliver us from folly. Please, Lord, deliver us from our sins and from Satan and from the power of the flesh. Speak to us at the level of our consciences. Bring us into glad obedience to Jesus through the forgiveness of all of our sins, into a joyful doing of his will and embracing of his words that we might actually be able to stand. We might stand upon the rock both now and forevermore. And in that great and final day that is coming, that storm that is coming, deliver us from the sand. Give us life upon the rock. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.